Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is our common ground. Alternative activists empowerment on radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. January 24th, 2004, Timothy Stansberry, Brooklyn, New York, unarmed. November 25th, 2006, Sean Bell, Queens, New York, unarmed. January 1, 2009, Oscar Grant, Oakland, California, unarmed. January 29th, 2010, Aaron Campbell, Portland, Oregon, Unarmed. July 18, 2011, Alonzo Ashley, Denver, Colorado. Unarmed. March 7, 2012, Wendell Allen, New Orleans, Louisiana. Unarmed. September 14, 2013, Jonathan Farrell, Charlotte, North Carolina. Unarmed. 
July 17, 2014, Eric Garner, Staten Island, New York, unarmed. August 9, 2014, Michael Brown, Ferguson, Missouri, unarmed. In the past decade alone, these men and hundreds of others have lost their lives to police. Local police report to the FBI killing at least 400 people a year. From 2006 to 2012, a white police officer killed a black person at least twice a week in this country. Which brings us back to Ferguson, Missouri. According to a report in the Daily Beast, in 2009, police officers charged a man for property damage because he bled on their uniforms while they arrested him and allegedly beat him bloody. Ferguson, Missouri, where it took six days to release the name of an officer who shot an unarmed teenager to death. Ferguson, Missouri, where police released images of someone who might be Michael Brown involved in a store robbery, and then hours later said the robbery had nothing to do with why Michael Brown was stopped by the police officer who killed him. Ferguson is just outside St. Louis, Missouri, the place where, as historian Blair Kelly reminded us this week in The Root, Dred Scott sued for his freedom on the grounds that he and his wife had for three years, had for many years, lived in a free state. His case eventually went to the Supreme Court, and in 1857, Chief Justice Roger Taney declared that Scott had no right to sue because, as a black man, he was never intended to be an American. Speaking on the clause in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, Taney wrote, quote, it is too clear for dispute that the enslaved African race were not intended to be included and formed no part of the people who framed and adopted this declaration. Taney went on to say that black men had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. No rights which the white man was bound to respect. No rights which the white man was bound to respect. No rights, which the white man was bound to respect.
You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, Janice Graham. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being with us here on Our Common Ground. We come into this episode of Our Common Ground tonight. Um saying on a day that we say farewell to Walter Scott, who was gunned down by a police officer in North Charleston, South Carolina. At the time where we were already consumed with broken heart of the loss of all of the people called out in our introduction, and we thank uh, MSNBC, the Melissa Harris-Perry Show, for that clip. We also come into this episode with, um, at the end of two major conferences about black people. On today, the Institute of the Black World concluded their reparations conference in New York City, as did the National Action Network. Just last week, the National Urban League concluded their annual conference. We come into this show tonight where the President of the United States is negotiating a path for American capitalists into the nation of Cuba. But we want to talk to you tonight about how we think black. We have a tendency to be distracted from our consciousness about the lives we live in the context of trying to think through how we save our children, create a future where they can be incubated in safety and confidence. You know, I chose the um, Al Green um, music because we really are a people with broken hearts. I think back to 2008, where so many of our people were distracted. So many of our people embraced the notion of hope and change for themselves and their families. And instead, what we have gotten in the era of the first African-American president of these United States is a drilling down of the notion that we must be put back. We must be controlled. So joining me tonight is Dr. Tommy J. Curry. He is um, 
our Common Ground voice that has joined us many times. And tonight we're going to be talking with him about how we suffer police murder, political strangulation, and the reign of white control. We're going to be looking at the police state in which we live. We're going to be looking at the confederacy that is rising across this nation and how our own government is waging war against our people. We have befallen in this era a new harsh racism, economic exploitation, by use of black bodies in prisons. And we have to understand, I am encouraging you to understand, the significance of the neglect of our political agenda, our economic agenda, agenda, our social agenda, which establishes a future for our children and our own pain and suffering. We are now in an era where racism is being de-radicalized. We have no nonpartisan interpretation of the black condition except for an extension of requests over and over to give them our vote. And despite all that my dear brother and dear friend, uh, Ron Daniels and uh, Don Rojas are doing with the uh, 21st Century Institute, trying to stay on the issue of reparations, the news is that reparations has fallen into a deep black tunnel for which you cannot see the stars. Dr. Tommy Curry, you know him. He's a professor of philosophy and critical race theorist who engages in the study of black people. His teaching, research, and writing spans many fields of philosophy, jurisprudence, Africana studies, and gender studies. He and I are going to be talking tonight about the issues that I just outlined. But what we want to do at the end of this, and you know that I am always looking for the end game, how do we begin to think black to save ourselves? Dr. Tommy Curry, thank you so very much, my dear brother, for joining us again. Good to have you back. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Glad to be back. Well, you can tell I am you know, I am experiencing what we are seeing happening in this country in a very emotional way. I mean, I've been doing this for thirty two years and mm-hmm. and I have been through some some stuff that I've had to uh pull apart and analyze and examine and evaluate about our people over those years, but I don't think that I have seen anything like we have experienced over the last six years. What's your thoughts? 
Well, look, I think, you know, we spoke about this, you know, on, your show, on previous shows before. You know, I think that we have a, a systematic oppression of black people that have really taken off, given, you know, kind of the symbolism of Obama, the perception that uh, that whites have that black people somehow gain more and that they're making certain political and economic advances over them, and then the frustration of whites who are suffering economically and politically uh, because of the economic uh, depression, uh, the recession, and because they they see themselves dwindling. You know, as I tell people all the time, when we look at history, we see very clear examples of economic downturns and political marginalization of whites, even if it's just in their heads, uh, leading to violence against black people, specifically black men. This is what happened during Reconstruction. This is what happened during the 1920s and 30s, when even white women decided they wanted to start clan organizations to fight against the economic mobility and advancement of black people generally. And again, black men were majorly targeted because of how they represented economic viability and a certain kind of manhood of the race uh, during the turn of the 20th century. You know, these problems are not going to go away. What we do currently, and, and I understand your frustration, I agree with you, what we do currently is we build up explanations of these things that point our sympathies towards them. Another black man was killed, he was unarmed. Another black man was killed, he was unarmed. The problem is that none of this is new. Black men have always been killed for the last 100 years, 200 years, unarmed, without provocation, by police and white vigilantes. It is part of the American system and the American democratic system. And now we have a people who consider themselves to be free, people who consider themselves to be individuals, people who believe, as Black Lives Matter clearly indicates, that people will recognize their voices. Well, we have a certain segment of this population, predominantly poor black men, who are constantly assassinated and killed such their voices can never be heard. And in this kind of paradox, where we believe that certain black people are now citizens and free and should be recognized by the state, by the government, and by other citizens, and other black people, black males, are being made corpse, we don't know how to resolve that. So we end up doing all this double talk. We end up appealing to white people and their sentiment, trying to explain to them that they have privilege, when in reality we're dealing with an actual war against the lives of black males and other poor black people who, in the very idea of being poor and black, are thought to be criminogenic, that they are simply birthing crime. And that's what white America sees. We're no longer in a period of time where we could pretend that white America somehow recognizes our humanity. And that's the problem with how we understand racism today. We look at it as simply an acknowledgement of our humanity, an issue of our own recognition, instead of understanding that racism is anti-black violence. Racism is death. And when racism continues to point out the same black male bodies and continues to kill them, when you have a 50-year-old man that's running away from a cop and still gets assassinated, executed, shot eight times in the back, we have a problem. And that problem is not going to be resolved by us pointing out to white people, hey, yet again, look, you've killed another innocent black man. We're not going to get cachet by simply repeating the names of these black men who are dying, these black men and boys who are dying. Because what we see happen is every time we repeat those names, now we have different apparatuses like the media system, like certain types of black bourgeois academics who try to erase those names. We need an actual reorganization of society. 
a reformulation of how we think about racism and anti-black death. And that's not going to be through appealing to the souls and the goodwills of white people who are, in this case, are still our oppressors. Talk to me a, a, a little about this: how we view symbols rather mm-hmm. than measure the realities of our lives. You know, one of the things that, as you know, I'm always concerned about is that we have uh, conscious people, uh, black consciousness, we've got those symbols. We've. I, I'm, I, I know about six, four years ago I was... I, I was very, very encouraged by the idea that black people were really using the the, the term white supremacy and mm-hmm. that black people were trying to put into focus what that meant in their lives. And, and, and so talk to us about the symbols and what we need to do in thinking black not only being of black consciousness, mm-hmm. but grinding the information about our realities through our brains from a black perspective, from a black experience, rather than trying to do the pop culture race thing. That's what I call it. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. That's a nice way of putting it. Uh, look, uh, you know, I think this is this is Derek Bell's work. You know, in, in solid communism. I mean, Derek was very insistent uh, when he was alive and throughout his writings that many of the things that black people take to be progress are not actual material progress. In other words, we don't see an actual translation of black progress in the post civil rights era as a better economic situation, a better education situation, a better employment situation, a better situation, political representation. What we see are things like Obama. And Obama is supposed to represent all those things for black America, even if they never materialize. So you can have Obama and you can have black unemployment get worse. You can have black economics get worse. You can have all these terrible things happen, but we somehow still believe in the representation. And unfortunately, this is the era that we're in. Uh, Lewis Gordon said part, you know, describes this as the era where you know, there's an attack on evidence, where we can have any kind of opinion as long as we somehow can show a representation. And I think that this is part of the problem that we have in accounting and holding systems accountable to what blackness and racism actually are dealing with. So when you think about the questions that John Edward Bruce is saying when he says, are we thinking black? Because, you know, his, 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 I always find these old school thinkers very interesting. You know, Bruce was a student of Delaney, mm-hmm. and he's writing, you know, in the 1970s, 1917, 1920, you know, right around the time that Carter G. Woodson writes his first book, The Appeal. And both of these brothers are trying to point something out. And what they're pointing out very clearly is when black people go to white institutions, and take up categories of white thought, be it law, economics, religion, etc., they learn to think white because what they end up doing is erasing the material existence of black people, and they interpret black social life through white theories. Now, you know, we attach this largely to Carter G. Woodson's, you know, The Miseducation of the Negro, but Bruce was trying to make the same point. And you see this today because, and you know, you've heard me say this before, the black academics, those people who are doing the pop culture race thing, are only interested in symbolic representation. These are the people. I actually just got through doing a, a lecture at Knox, at Knox College. 
these are the people. These are the, the, we're in a, we have students, young people, who believe that if you give them evidence, data, actual cases and scenarios, that they can mistrust concrete empirical evidence for a mythology. Mm-hmm. So you can, mm-hmm. if I tell, if I can show you that black men are killed more than by police, or that black men are incarcerated more next to any other group, black women, white women, white men, etc., they believe that their symbolism, be it gender, be it their notes of progress or hope, somehow overturn empirical evidence. And this is how we've taught people to discuss race these days. So you have people who say something like, I don't believe race ex- racism exists. I'm an individual. I don't think racism plays or has an effect on my life. I have friends who are white. Right? You have all these kind of beliefs that center around how they want to interpret the killings of people like Walter Scott, Michael Brown, etc., without having to grasp with the reality of the difference between black life and white life in this country. Everything's been made into an opinion. People get to perform their feelings as if their feelings are somehow evidence or proof of something actual in the world. So what these pop culture race scholars have done, people who are these extreme liberals, these extreme progressives, these extreme black feminists, what they've done is they've taken these mythologies of hope and transformation and used that to justify their interpretation of black death. Most popularly, we see this in the constant attack of black men as victims of, of police brutality. We know very well from court cases, incarceration, and just sheer murder that black men are disproportionately affected by police brutality in this country. But because there's a mythology that says that gender operates in a certain way, we're fighting amongst ourselves about who's the greatest victim of death. We're not making proactive stances about the people who are killing us. We're arguing some kind of privilege exists because somebody's killed more and they get more attention for being victimized. And this, or, this, this is the articulation, right? This, this is the problem. Like, we're not talking about racism. We're not talking about how we think about the condition that our black people are in, how so many of us, men and women, are dying. Children are being shot. Yes. We're arguing with each other about how we get currency about victimization. And that's a problem. That does not ignite political organization and activity. You know, or we can extrapolate it in a, in, in 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 another way. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, when Michael Brown was murdered by Darren Wilson, um, when the video came up about him robbing a store, but right. robbing the store, we retreated. In a lot of ways. Yes, we did. When, when, when Tamir Rice, 12 years old, was murdered by police, assassinated by police officers, we started having a conversation about why he had a toy gun. Exactly. When Eric Garner was murdered in front of our faces, we started having a conversation about the same narrative that they were justifying his murder about selling cigarettes on the sidewalk. Then, here we are, one more time, Walter Scott, Mm -hmm. and I do want to extend my sympathies to his family and friends uh, who might be listening. Uh, We want to have a conversation about him not paying child support. But when I say thinking black, 
I need for people to begin to think how child support is used as a weapon against black men and contributes to what you all love to talk about this prison prison yeah prison industrial complex no you're absolutely you're absolutely right but but notice but notice how all those stereotypes gain hold in our own communities you see mm-hmm. the, because because we've become accustomed to mythologies that demonize black men and this is and see this is this is the thing we we have mythologies in our communities that genuinely believe that black men are criminals, thugs, and rapists. And we also have pathologies that exist in our community that believe that poor black people, they birth, these poor black women birth criminals, thugs, and rapists. So we, we believe that there are certain segments of our population that are undeserving, are irredeemable, right, cannot be, cannot be vindicated for the types of attitudes and behaviors they have. So when you have these stereotypes, and see, this is what really pisses me off. When you have these stereotypes about a black man who didn't pay child support or a black man who was doing something illegally or a black man who could have been a robber or criminal or something, all of these stereotypes work to activate that desire that black academics and middle class people have to distance themselves from those black men, even though they're victims. So when they say something like, well, this black man wasn't respectable, he was guilty of something, since some of the black community, these academic scholars, activists, and progressive people want to pull away. They want to get distance because that's the criminal nigger. We are not that, so we, want to ju- we don't want the rest of society to see us as the same thing. But that is not conditional on what those people actually were. That's on our insecurities and how we believe that civil rights actually works. Because we believe that the necessity for our freedom is based on white people recognizing us and not actually the freedom for all black people. And this is the class division that happens between those black people who are forced to think black because they're encountered with material realities and death every day, and then black academics, politicians, and middle class folk who think white in perceiving their condition as being fundamentally separate from them. And that's why we have all this the schizophrenia. When it comes to explaining black death, this is why we want to explain away the vulnerability of black men, because we see them as a problem people and a problem subject. So you have people even trying to figure out, well, if he owes child support, how does that, how does that even become an excuse? How does that become a, a reason in hell that a man should be shot in the back as he flees, as he runs for his life? Like the the problem is that we've adopted a, a, a scenario. We've adopted the same kind of Jim Crowisms that assume that black men are should be killed for any offense they make to the social order. If they talk to a white woman like Emmett Till, if they offend if they don't if they're walking on the same street as a white woman like McWhorter, if they're a criminal, if they're selling cigarettes, if they have offended any white person, if they look them in the eye, all these become justifications for death. The same thing with the hollow back video. A black man should be put under arrest because he's always thought to be a threat, always thought to be a rapist of someone. And it's all these perceptions that we have of black men that make them vulnerable, that make that allow these types of stereotypes to have such power. Because deep down, as much as we say, well, that's racist, black people don't ever want to be associated with that stereotype themselves. And this well, is I would we add also that that we have these stereotypes that we rant against, even with our children, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, sagging, sagging pants. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I don't like it, 
but they 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 the police the system of white supremacy has right. started Public to schools. use it as a tool. Yep. Absolutely. And, Same thing with and that's what I mean by thinking black. There's an urgency that we have to re, we have to evaluate these things from the black experience. And you know, well, we've internalized it. We've, yeah, we've, Dr. We've Curry, I've been talking about this. I've been talking about this for thirty. I had an interview with Dr. Amos Wilson mm-hmm. uh, that I was listening to today. When he and I talked um, for the first time back in 1989, and we were talking about the same thing, that we cannot embrace and and, and, and legitimize the tools that they create in which to oppress us. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But this is what happens when you live in a white supremacist society. This is Wade Noble's point. All right? When, when the pro- you see, Janice, you know, the, the frustrating thing about being in the academy is that you see a lot of people trying to talk about these problems, the murders of these, of these poor, poor black men. And what ends up happening is that they end up deploying the very same stereotypes that they claim they're reacting against. And what happens is because we live in a white supremacist environment, it's the black people who have internalized the pathologies of anti-blackness against their own groups of people that become the spokespersons for the race. They're the people who are rewarded. They're the people who white people look to and say, wow, that person is brilliant. Not because they've demonstrated a concrete understanding of how we think black, appealing to empirical situations and historical context to explain present conditions, not because of that acuity, but because they simply reiterate the same kind of moral condemnations about poorness or about maleness or about a nationalistic or, you know, disruptive blackness that white people too fear. So you have black people who are gatekeepers, so to speak, by allowing white people to feel comfortable and protecting them against the, you know, abrasive and aggressive types of blackness that are calling for social change. Because these individuals that do this racial pop culture are never held accountable for not being able to get the situation right. They're just able to explain to white audiences that, hey, something's wrong with those people too. Trust me. And this is why even our young people who are motivated by what they see as injustice in the Black Lives Matter movement and across classrooms around the country have failed to grasp the significance of what's going on. This is not a moment about civil rights starting in the 21st century. This is a moment about why civil rights failed in the 20th century and the types of obstacles and burden it's putting on people still alive in our time now. And we haven't made that connection because we still believe that there was some kind of magical transformation. White people liked us. All black people were somehow accurate about their experience, not their counter-analysis, but their experience of race and racism, just their sheer oppression of dealing with white people. And we've missed all the historical context, the economic mobilization, the economic problems, the economic exploitation, the prison industrial complex, and the, and the, and the, the on-in-our-face murder of black people, because we've mm-hmm. decided that we have other things to talk about. And, th- and that becomes what the underspecialization and ignorance on our part. That's why we can't organize. 
because we don't understand the material conditions, the economic, political, etc., conditions that are obstructing our ability for black people to have a shared black consciousness that incorporates all black victims of violence. We're we're still arguing about about we're we're arguing about tits and tats. Who's seen more? Who's recognized more? Who's leading what? And that's what I find mm-hmm. so interesting is that you have all these black people, black boys and black men dying, but you have an active you have an active pull, an active strategy saying that black men should not lead any movements about themselves. This is all that you see on these popular blogs. This is all you see on on you know on Facebook, etc. Black men are dying, but we don't need black nationals to come back. God no, right? We get a black men are getting shot in the back, but we don't need to turn violent. Black men are doing that, but right? And all this marching, all this protesting, all these tweets have not saved a black person's life, especially a black man's life. So we have to mm-hmm. ask ourselves, why are we willing as black people to settle for the consistent murder and incarceration of these groups of people? No other group of people do this. And, Every and other group of, of people says that they're fighting for their humanity, yet we sit back and say, don't worry about us, we're nonviolent, and we provide no systemic analysis of why this continues to happen. I'm wondering if what 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 one of the contributions to this, Dr. Curry, has to do with that we see it not in terms of connecting dots, but we see them as individual and Absolutely. isolated in, in uh, events. Absolutely. That Absolutely. Uh, very few people really understand that what happened to Emmett Till is the same thing that happened to Walter Scott. Mm. No, we don't, because, we don't have any historical context. Well, the other piece is I don't think that we want to give way to the idea. For instance, I was thinking the other day, and many people out there who are listening probably were thinking the same thing, why don't we just friggin' give the goddamn cops the guns and tell them, go ahead, and you will, and, and just make the rule that says you will never be held accountable for killing black people. Mm-hmm. Nobody's raising the, 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 the alarm right. of how... We are in 2015 without justice, without democracy, without liberty, and there is no system in place that will protect us. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, you have to think about it. We're having this conversation in a world where black men are still getting lynched. Yeah, like we're, we're having a conversation. I mean, think about this. We're, I mean, this this is why I say how misguided we are in perceiving our own conditions of oppression. We are having arguments about strategies to react to police shooting black men in a world where white people, private citizens, are still lynching black men. So we we are trying to make an argument for why nonviolence. The right kind of discourse, right, it needs to be inclusive and democrat all this other identity stuff is happening in a world that resembles a Jim Crow South of the nineteen forties and fifties. Where we've militarized the police force, where we have all sorts of technology that allows us to watch our police, and the police are still getting off when they kill black men. Just like the police officer that's getting off with you know, when he takes uh Andre Little, you know, in the school. We, this, mm-hmm. These are the types of violations that we see to this population, and we have bought so far into the idea that well, we're pro- we've made progress. We're all individuals. 
where we're free now because of civil rights and we got Obama, that we can't recognize how racial oppression has transformed and remains a dynamic even within those larger symbols that tell us that we've actually made progress. We see most of our black men either killed or put in jail. We see black men being the most unemployed, the most uneducated, the most convicted of drug felonies, the most that drop out of the bottom of society, disproportionately affected by disease, die first. We see all this about this population, and we make a selfish analysis. Well, it's black men, let's not focus on them, instead of a systemic analysis that says, given this is happening to black men and boys, what does it mean for black women and girls, and how does it affect the black households and thereby the black community? We don't mm-hmm. ask a very simple question. Has this happened before in history? That simple question mm-hmm. shows like, yeah, it did, and here's the effect that it had. See, none of these questions become the parameter by which we analyze our situation. We rather turn to blogs that give us no analysis or use cita- don't use citations to tell us how we should feel about a situation. They, tell, they try to comfort us out of our rage, saying, don't care so much about these black men. Don't care so much about this violence. Care about how you're perceived. Instead of saying, look, those types of propaganda, because they're not your show, they're not the Reading show, they're not Black Agenda Report, right? They're none, of the sh- they're none of the black intellectual journalism that's trying to solidify empirical conditions, right? Because unlike, unlike the blogs, y'all reporting on things that happened this week, today, to black people. Right? They're not. You're, you're saying here's what's happening. How do we reconcile our notions of freedom with the contradiction of a black man being shot who is unarmed running away? You say you're free, but even on videotape, when they shoot you and kill people that look like us, they get away with it. We have Obama, but we have an right. There's a there's a contradiction between the reality that black people experience and what we claim actually exists because of these symbols. No other place is asking us to reconcile that contradiction. They're trying to scave over it. So even as much as I like that Melissa Harris Perry's recently talked about you know the death of black men and she's done a pretty good job about about that. There's still a mystification about whether or not black people can exist as citizens in this country. Because she appeals mm-hmm. to a liberal white audience, an mm-hmm. educated bourgeois black audience. So there's never going to be a conversation about if it's impossible for black men to get recognition. Because she's constantly saying that black men are just murdered without cause. right? That's, that's been her thing for the last few months. Then how do you reconcile that with the kind of liberal hopefulness that you get not only from her program, but the general program at MSNBC? So, how, so what message can you give to black people who are dealing with this kind of situation? There, there is no advice. So we need outlets who are going to say, well, look, given that this is an empirical situation, lawyers, can we appeal to the law? If we can't appeal to the law, what kind of organization do we need? What kind of Mm self-defense do we need? See, these are questions that aren't being asked. And those are very legitimate, and they should be highlighted, prioritized questions. But part of the reason that we're not raising those questions is that we want to continue to participate in a public square that doesn't want us there. Oh, you, yeah. We want to, I mean, for instance, most of the people listening to us tonight, Dr. Curry, it they would blanch at the idea if someone stood up and said the only, the only way in which we can defend ourselves from this 
epidemic of killing black men in the street by police is to start doing what we need to do to put them in control ourselves because the system is not going to put them in control and we need to arm ourselves. Uh, Ernie... The, the 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 state legislator out in um I think it was Arizona mm-hmm. when he said he would shoot a police officer. Oh yeah, uh Ernie, uh, his name Nebraska, is Ernie. Yeah. I, yeah. When he said that, black people went, "Oh my god, you can't go around talking about you're going to shoot police officers. That's not an appropriate response for a state legislature." Right. Uh but then I'm thinking what is the Black Legislative Caucus doing? Mm-hmm. What are they no. doing? What did they do about Katrina, the the remnants of Katrina? What did they do about Trayvon Martin? What did they do but other than run, beat, as my grandmother used to say, beat their gums until they were sore and then they shut their mouths? Mm. So... Nope. I mean, it is clear to me that whatever we have in place is not working. No, absolutely. But we're discouraging. You see, this is this is what I mean: is that we're stuck in a in a repetition phase. You see, we haven't encouraged black people to come up with creative and new ideas. We haven't we haven't we haven't encouraged creativity in the political sphere. So what you see young black people doing today. Is rather repeating and trying to imitate what they saw as the symbols of progress from decades ago. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the problem with that is that they don't understand that the marches and protests, while sexy and shown on PBS, were not the fundamental engines behind the civil rights movement. The fundamental engines were the kind of radicalized actions that you have from a Malcolm X, from the Black Panther Party, from a Robert F. Williams. Right, it, it comes from all the different things that you get from Ella Baker and, and King, not in sense of his preaching, mm-hmm. but in sense of his boycotts. Right, these were systematic and multivaried approaches to harm white supremacy on economic, political, and just flat out violent stances. Right, it was challenging mm-hmm. white lives, challenging their well-being, and simply challenging their access uh, that they had to black folk. Today, we don't have that because we're not multi-pronged thinkers. Like I said, we're more interested in arguing about identity, who's leading Black Lives Matter, is it intersectional, than whether or not Black Lives Matter is actually achieving the safety of the people that it's marching for. And mm-hmm. in a world where mm-hmm. you still have all these – you see, and this is what upsets me. In a world where marching, we march for Trayvon, right? We, 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 we rallied around Ayanna Stanley. We, uh, the, the, the child that uh, Michelle Obama came to see in Chicago – um, Hayden, I think her last name was Pendleton. Hey, hey, or, y- yeah, Hayata. Yeah, yes, yes. You know, all, we we've done that. So where, why has that symbolism not stopped other people from being killed? And that's the that's the problem I have, is that we mm-hmm. we've invented notions and ideas that we think are progressive in and of themselves, that have done nothing to stop our people from being shot. And then every time another black person is shot, we have the same conversation. Because there's no one saying, look, here's why black men are being shot. Because there's a historical fear of black men, be them as criminal or as rapists. And given that, we know that the disposition that any cop has to, to them is going to be this. 
So that means that we need black lawyers saying there is no excuse. There has to be co We need black psychologists saying this is the case. Racism exists in each and every one of these instances. Right, we need to if we're going to talk about how scholars should influence this, how scholars should think black, then that becomes the way in which research is directed into a social goal. To the establishment of a direct correlation between racism and anti and, and the black and black males and black women's deaths. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and the mistake of the mistake of people running around saying that um, no racial group can be treated as a monolith in these matters. What the hell? That's because they're not they're not looking at structures. They're still worried and, about and they're still arguing about identity. Right. We're gonna have to take a break, and when we come back, we're gonna t- talk more. I want to specifically talk about the criminal justice system and some of the recent move in our Congress, which speaks which which speaks to this whole notion of why we have to begin to think black. You know, for instance, your black reality is this. If you take nothing away and think about this this week, 42% of whites polled by CNN, they were asked if they thought that police officers in their area were prejudiced against blacks, and 42% said no. So the people who we are trying so hard to assage, mm-hmm. they have no idea about your reality. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, and we're talking about the urgency of thinking black in the age of Obama. We're going to be taking your calls at at the top of the hour, our number, and you might want to write it down, 347-838-9852. And I see you, 347, and we'll come first to you. I'm Janice Graham, and this is Our Common Ground. And don't you go away. Uh, You stay right there because we've got more for you. This is Our Common Ground, broadcasting bold, brave, and black. You'd better know. Obama says we're not going to have boots on the ground, but now you got over a thousand soldiers. You know why there's going to be more? Because they're going to start killing some of those that we've already pulled there now. Because if you can't get 30,000 Shiites to stand their ground and they're fully armed, just a thousand Sunnis, and they drop their weapons, drop their uniforms, Drop their draws and run. What have you got? Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. The Alpha Show. The Alpha Show. Fridays, 10 p.m. Just damn. Advanced political pushback. Talk radio on TruthWorks Network. Three Fridays. He's all about politics. 10 p.m. 
Tommy J. Curry, 
And if you're listening to your to the broadcast and you'd like to join us in our active chat room, you can go to blogtalkradio.com backslash, that's to your right, OCG, and you can join um, our blog, um, our chatters. Um, so uh, that would be a good thing. We have a full uh, chat room. We thank Alpha of the Alpha Show at TruthWorks Network. And India Declare of the I Declare Show is with us in our chat room tonight. Dr. Tommy J. Curry, I was playing the black black men, you know, I love that. You know, yeah. one of the things it says, it says, um, your dreams ain't easy. I hope you all were listening to that. Your dreams ain't easy going from boys to men. And I, I, I think in this whole theme of thinking black, um, a time for Sankofa looking back, in order to go forward, that we need to really think about what our experience is, our consciousness. We do, there are many people who have a black consciousness, but we have to integrate it. We have to process all of these things that are going on in this country, both politically, socially, economically, for black people through that consciousness. It can't be isolated. It just can't be isolated. We've got lots of calls, and for those of you who would like to call in and talk with Dr. Curry and maybe even talk with me, the number is 347-838-9852. And while you're waiting, make sure you – I'd like to get maybe about 100 more follows at Our Common Ground on uh, Twitter and Facebook. We're at both uh, OCG Talk Radio at Facebook, and you can get notices about the fine programming that we do for you. We are um, not nonprofit. We are no profit. Um, I do this radio now as payment for my rent on in the universe, and we appreciate you being with us. Okay, Dr. Curry, you ready for some calls? No, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, 347, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. 347 has been waiting for a long time. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. can. You Thank you, sir, for yes. joining us. Good evening. Thank you for taking the call. Um, this is Dot calling from Brooklyn, New York. Um, thank you, Dr. Curry, for being on the program. Um, I just want to go back a little bit because I noticed in the intro you played uh, a clip from a Melissa Paris Harry uh, uh, Harris Perry show, and she mentioned a number of black males who were killed by police officers or involved in officer-involved shootings. Now, my wife's sister, Miriam Carey, was killed uh, in Washington D.C. in October of 2013. Oh, yes. And one of the problems that we have had as a family who has had to deal with our loved one being killed publicly and having Congress stand up and applaud her death on the news, having the video play over and over again, is the frustration with 
every time one of these officer-involved shootings happen, it's like it begins all over again. All over again. It's a trigger. Because other folks, until it happens to your family personally, you can't begin to imagine what it actually is like to read blogs and go on YouTube and see all sorts of individuals, many of whom you followed or you respected, say the most disgusting and disrespectful and inaccurate things about your loved one. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's absolutely terrible. And for us, uh, it's been particularly frustrating um, dealing with folks who classify themselves as quote-unquote conscious because mm-hmm. these individuals have been the worst uh, in terms of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my sister-in-law was killed in Washington, D.C., and the day in which she was killed was October 3rd, which happened to be the anniversary of the president and the first lady. And one of the reasons that I surmise why this her, her death wasn't taken up as being something that was a talk point for those who were in the conscious circles and others is because of their love affair with the president, and many mm-hmm. of them did not want to confront the fact that there was an administrative breakdown in terms of the security protocols and so forth because the information that has come to light after the fact, long after Mm -hmm. it has faded from the headline, is completely different than what the public initially believed the situation Mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. And you don't see the follow-up stories. None of the press say, oh, she never rammed any White House gate. What actually happened is an individual threw a bicycle rack on the front of her car, and she attempted to avoid him, and this individual chased her down the street, and she was fleeing for her life. And when you saw those individuals who were firing shots at her, she was in the car with her 13-month-old daughter fleeing for her life. And they don't tell you that there were at least 25 cameras which caught this incident on camera, but you don't see any of that footage. You just see the same mm-hmm. old mm-hmm. loop footage over and over again. The government has not released any of the actual footage from the scene of the crime, nor have they allowed any of the footage from the tourists. There were hundreds of tourists who videotaped this to leak into the media because it clearly shows that she was unarmed and that she had her hands raised. And Mm -hmm. I'm particularly frustrated that it's the black women who have been killed in officer-involved shootings like young Iona Jones and other young black women. It's not included in this narrative when we have these discussions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is very important for us to talk about black men because they are disproportionately at a higher percentage being killed in these officer-involved shootings. But I think it does a disservice when we don't talk about the totality of the victimization Mm -hmm. of the black family, men and Mm -hmm. women, Mm -hmm. children Mm -hmm. as well, who are being killed in officer-involved shootings. I think that when, for me personally, when I hear everyone get so riled up about Walter Scott and all these other things, it just, it's like a spit, it's like spit in my face. Mm -hmm. Well, I want you to know that on this show, I was spitting 
about your sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly Absolutely. what I mean about thinking black. We have to think through that your sister-in-law was a, a senseless assassination by public federal officers. Absolutely. That's the bottom line of it. And, sir, one of the things I, I'd like for you to do is to get in, in touch with me be, while you before you start your conversation with Dr. Curry, because I think it is very important, and we did do an episode about her murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have talked many times on this show about the issue of government – surveillance and the, pro- the 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 process of foyers the mm-hmm. freedom of information act and how the federal government especially does everything to reject a request for information like the video that you're talking about mm-hmm. and and you, you, your family how is the baby doing that that she's been on my mind for for uh, many months now. She's doing well. Um, my wife spoke to her father the other day. Um, mm-hmm. We're in constant contact with them. Um, Good. My daughter, who's also three years old, she's a few years older than her. They were more like sisters than cousins. She's mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. the phone a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. but it, it's just very difficult as a family, you know. Yeah, um, to, yeah. Because, I understand. you know, there are times when hurt my sister-in-law, her daughter, ask for her mother, and no Mm -hmm. one knows what to say to her. I mean, just Mm -hmm. this evening when we pulled onto my block, uh, the police were going in the other direction, and they had their lights on, and my daughter's in the back seat, and she's three years old, and she says, Daddy, it's the police. Let's be careful. They might kill us like Auntie Miriam. She's three years old, and she's saying that. Tommy, you see the kind of damage. We see this kind of damage to our children and to witnesses. Our children are witnesses to this stuff. Well, this 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 is why I keep saying that we need a systemic analysis of how we understand violence. Because you know, and brother, you know, my heart goes out to you. Uh, you know, I'm very, I'm very, very sorry for your loss. But you know, this is this is what I mean. When we when we separate, and this is this is what I was saying earlier when I was saying that the problem is that we kill black men, but we think that they're the products of these pathological black women and black families and black communities. You see, if we keep focusing on identity, then we miss the larger picture of how violence affects everyone in our communities. So if we if we it's like I, the example I gave before about Rakia Boyd. Rakia Boyd was shot because the cop was shooting at Antonio Cross. So what happens is that police believe that black people are subject to violence. And in the cases where they go in, they're doing no-knock raids, and they shot the baby out of Stanley, all these things are community problems. But we don't focus on community problems because we're not trying to come up with analyses of why violence is still affected on black people. We're still arguing about identity. We're still, we're, we, mm-hmm. we have a situation where our community is being constantly surveyed, they're constantly under police brutality. They're constantly under all kind of force. And like you're saying, our children are seeing people get killed. 
And you know how you know the, we've had these discussions over Facebook before. What what is the mental health of black people to have to see each other become corpses? Like what what are we what are we telling or what can we do about a situation where our children have to interiorize their fear of death because they see us, their parents, other politicians not able to stop them. From, protect their lives in a society where all black people become expendable, where we're simply disposable. And we can argue back and forth all day about politics. We can argue about recognition and cause. But what happens to the psychology of a group of people, of a new generation that's raised in this environment? Thank you. What expectations can they have, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that this is something, you know, this is something that we have to worry about. We We can't keep fighting each other. Over how we identify, so we have to we have to get to the nuts and bolts of why so many of our men and women and children are being yeah. killed. Sir, I, uh, what is your name? Uh, uh, your your first name again? This is us, Uh I'm certainly um, would like to be in touch with you because I think it's very important for us to Absolutely. begin to talk about how families are affected. Um, I have been very reluctant, and I, and I have to admit this to my audience. Uh, I had an opportunity to interview Trayvon Martin's father uh, maybe about three uh, weeks uh, after the trial ended, and I chose not to do that. Um, I was encouraged to talk with other families, uh, and I chose not to do that. I think that it becomes exploitive uh, in many ways, uh, I think that grief is a very private, uh, prolonged, and intensive process, especially uh, when it is a violent death. But um, I, I would I, I would like to 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 begin to talk about the issues of not only of how families experience and get injured by these events um and you hear i hear the the pain in your voice sir i really hear the pain in your voice but we've got to get to the idea of thinking black and just how much we are being re-injured. The whole notion, as we've talked on this program many, many times over the years, about the notion of um, of, of syndromes. We are a people who are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. We are a people who are experiencing a collective and shared depression. And that is one of the explanations too, Dr. Dr. Curry, that we are not strategically and effectively organizing. Yeah. Sir, thank you so very much for thank your you calls so much, and and yes. uh, our 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 thoughts and prayers are with you and your family. Thank you. I appreciate an opportunity to share, and you know. To the whole Scott family, I know what you're going through. Trust me, you have my condolences. And to any other person out there that is listening currently, don't think that it can't be your family because it could be your family tomorrow or tonight. This situation is a lot more out of control than you actually think it is. Mm -hmm. And when it happens to you, 
trust me, you can't begin to imagine the level of pain. Mm -hmm. Thank you, sir, so very much. And I hope you'll join us each Saturday night at 10 p.m. But uh, give, uh, get in touch with me through Facebook, and uh, we can talk. Yes. I'd, I'd, I'd like that. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it really is heartbreaking. And, you know, the other thing is not only uh, experiencing the violent deaths, but also having to walk through and not have the tools to think through the cover-ups, the lies, the deceptions. And when it's the government, the betrayal. Right. We're going to go to, uh, I'm sorry, um, I stepped right on you, Dr. Gary. What were you saying? (laughs) No, I mean, you know, it's, it, it, as a black person, it just becomes so hard, you know, not to not to feel that pain, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, I have mm-hmm. two little girls, so I mean, you could imagine what would happen if you know if I was killed in front of them, or, or their mother was killed in front of. Them. It's, you know, it's heartbreaking, you know. Yeah. And, these, and that's what I yeah. mean. This is this is what these these identity politics and and all this theory misses is that we we lost we lost a mother, we lost a black person that was somebody's sister, that was somebody's wife. And then, yes. and we're never talking about people in that way. Yes. You know? And and maybe it's because it's the question that I always posed on this program, uh, and maybe it's the question of do black lives matter and to whom? Right. Yeah. You're right. We just yeah. become. We just I mean, I I have a grandson who's 13, but he is now six one. And I worry about him. I worry. I mean, it's almost like I don't. I, I want to imprison him because at 13, there's no amount of talk you can have with a 13-year-old, and they respond appropriately. Even right. though he's a very kind, very nice no, uh, person. No, he just doesn't know. He just doesn't know. Yeah, he he would not he's know. Too young. He would not know. Yeah. He would be he would be frightened. And and the whole notion, especially for boys, that whole notion of both competitiveness and self-preservation kicks in. Right. You know, um, and and it's been amazing for me as a grandmother um, to have to acclimate to what boys require as opposed to what girls require. Um, and it's not just the food. The boys will eat you out of house and home. <laughs> we, we just, you know, our people are in danger. Yeah. Yes. 937, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Hi. Uh, thanks, Sister Janice. Uh, this is Zakia from uh, Dayton, Ohio. Oh, and Zakia, um, thank you hear. so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to hear my brother Tommy on. Um, glad you called. Uh, Siam Jones, the caller before, uh, he's a, a Facebook friend of mine. I actually have invited him via Facebook, and I'm glad that he was able to get on and share his story. Um, one of the one of the things that I'm running into, and I love that you pointed it out this out, um, Janice, is that we're not right organizing well. And one of the challenges that I face in my community 
and even as a part of, you know, my national work, a, a part of a, a campaign that I'm with nationally, is that I run into the identity politics all the time, and and it's really um, frustrating, and, and it's really hard to navigate sometimes because I have been one of those radical black voices in that nationalist tradition that's been pretty much pushed out of a number of places because that is my politics, and I make no apologies about, you know, standing up for black people, period, and also, you know, when it's necessary, you know, calling out um, the issues as it stands, you know, based on data and just see it mm-hmm. based on reality, you know, about black boys and men. And one of the things that I always face, you know, when I go into certain community settings or even in national settings, I'll say, you know, because our work primarily is dealing with educational justice and the school to prison pipeline. So I'll say, you know, black boys, you know, represent the highest demographic being pushed out of schools right into prisons. And, you know, I'll get the pushback. Well, black girls, you know, are being pushed out, too, and, and, and they're pushed out more more than all other boys, and, I'll, and I have to, like, reiterate, except black boys. I mean, so it's like, you know, you get into this tug of war over, you know, identity politics, and I think that's why I'm so attracted to Dr. Tommy Curry's work is because I can actually use his work, um, you know, in these settings, so to speak, to validate my arguments, you know, so to speak. And um, I just think, I don't know, I guess I'm looking for tools uh, besides all the writing that Dr. Curry has done um, on how to really challenge, uh, I guess, in a way um, that's effective that doesn't get me pushed out of certain circles. And I don't even know if there's an answer for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I can tell you, I can tell you from personal experience it's tough. you know, even you know, even if you come in, I mean, even like you know, I'll just give you a story of academics. You know, even when you come in and say, "Look, my interest is how black men and boys and how their deaths affect the black community, right? What it does to black households, how it affects, you know, uh, mate mate selection for black." Nobody cares about that because the way right. that we have, the way that black our race theory has developed after the civil rights movement has very much been along one axis, and that's the kind of intersectional black feminist axis. And even when that that paradigm can't provide answers, so when you think about the idea that they say, well, look, black women are disadvantaged because of race and gender, I say, okay, fine, well, then let's go test these types of disadvantages. And when you compare things like education, mortality, police brutality, you know, underemployment, all these things, black men are more disadvantaged than black women. Now, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean, and you see, this is what upsets me, in the identity politic model or in even the intersectional black feminist model, that somehow means that you're saying that black women are not oppressed. That's stupid. What it means is that when you're doing a side-by-side comparison, I don't have another word for it. (laughs) When you're doing a side-by-side comparison, you can say that there's certain advantages that black women have over black men, and if you look at some other areas, there may be an advantage a black man has over a black woman. That's how you do group studies. So the idea that black people or any black activist, male or female, 
has to apologize or dance around what they can right. demonstrate as a material disadvantage is all about ideology and not about proof. Because in many of those cases, and I just had a case when I went to Knox College, many of those cases where they assert these types of things, like, well, black women are killed at the same rate, the, the idea is, one, you're looking at an extremely low rate of, of killing between white women and then, like, black women care, killed in comparison to white women, and you're not looking at the overall number. So if you know that men are killed generally more, then you're going to say, oh, well, the rate's different. I mean, this is, this is just this is them kind of trying to manipulate numbers. When you're looking at the raw number, like if you look at how many black men are in jail versus black women in jail, there's clearly a disparity. When you look at right. historically how many black men have been killed or executed or convicted for things like rape or the fear of black men committing crimes, they're clearly disproportionately represented. So the idea that people who are interested in this reality, or even the school-to-prison pipeline, interested in this reality have to somehow explain that this disadvantage, which is empirical and real, can't be talked about, is just a matter of who owns the discourse or who, who has the hegemonic you know, copyright on how we get to speak about race. Because there's no way that we can even, even given if we even give the black feminist argument or the intersectional argument credence in this, how is it possible then that black men and black women are allegedly graduating at the same rate, or falling falling out, being suspended at the same rate? But then when you get to college or employment, no black men are there. Where's the breakdown then? And that's right. what I mean <laughs> when I say that they can't ever explain. Like they can make the claim, but they can't explain the causal result of it. So we should see black men in college. We should see black men rising up through the ranks of economic mobility and professionalism. But that's not what we see in terms of degree matriculation or anything else. So I think that the way to do that is, I mean, you know, you could go in and say, look, you're all stupid. Or <laughs> you can say, look, you know, the reality is is that there's an ideological discourse that's, that's obstructing the way that we talk about black men and boys. And there's lots of writings that, you know, people have done. Uh, that, I'll, that I'll certainly share with you that are trying to point this very thing out, that we need new models to talk about this because the, the progressive intersectional lens is just not giving us any explanative weight. It's just not dealing with the real issues. Yeah, and that's that. That's the challenge. I mean, I'm because I'm one of the things that I'm noticing, and it's very subtle. Um, I I have a presentation to give at our national meeting here uh, in a couple weeks, and there's been two reports as it relates to the school to prison pipeline for the audience that's been released on uh, black girls and educational um, justice and educational equity. One was done by the National Women's Law Center and the uh, NAACP. CP Legal Defense Fund, Tommy, you remember I, I, when I was at that in February, and, yeah, and yeah. you uh, contacted me about that. But then there was another one that was done by the African American Policy Center and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, right. um, and that, that was on, I think that one was called Black Girls Matter. But there was another one that the Shaw Foundation did, and it was specifically on black boys, and that one has not, I mean, been publicized as much, has have been talked about as much. I don't know where the breakdown is, and I'm thinking that it has to deal with some kind of ideology. But even at this national meeting, right, on this school-to-prison pipeline, there's two people on the panel to talk about um, uh, the the African American Girls Report. That's fine, but then there's nobody that has been identified, and I just found this out. Um, that has been identified to talk about the Shot Foundation's report on black boys. So now I'm scrambling, right? Because I'm not going to allow that to happen because I'm a part of the panel. I'm scrambling, like, to get together, you know, some some uh, 
uh, information or highlights from the report that I really want to point out at this meeting. And I just think that's that subtle, um, because I, I mean, obviously I've already been identified, right? Um, that's that subtle, well, we want to balance the conversation because she's only going to get up there and talk about, you know, black boys and black men. When it's not that for me, it's it's about, it is because it's personal for me. I mean, I have a son, I've lived this. Right. Um, and how early it starts, right, you know, for, for black mm-hmm. children. I mean, my son was criminalized, and um, I had to fight to not have him identify, literally fight, you know, um, the school system as early as three years old, you know, in preschool, and have him identified as ADHD and needing medication and all this other stuff. But if it wasn't for, you know, my um, diligence in researching and um, filing complaints with the Civil Rights uh, Department of of U.S. Department of Education and other things, you know, I probably would have been a parent who had been just victimized by the system Mm -hmm. and allowed my son to be identified, pushed pushed into special education, and medicated. And I see that a lot in my community. And that's something else that we're not talking about is how, how even black boys are highly represented in that. In the over identification of special ed, in the mm-hmm. over you know identification, Control you know, and, and of depressing their activities. All of that. Yeah, I'm a parent advocate, and I do that in my local community. As I as I get with parents, and I sit there and I witness them in IEP meetings. I mean, it's it's terrible just what's happening. But you don't hear this larger discourse. Nobody wants to like deal with that. Another thing is, you know, you have these foundations who are giving out money specifically for black males, but when it gets out, no one in the discourse is really specifying anything for black male it get watered it gets watered down into you know wimp girls you know which that's i mean that's fine because yeah the girls are being affected too or you know lgbtq youth you know they you know they're being affected too and then nobody all and then it gets watered down so to speak and you know it's like you're struggling to lift up that you know, okay, well, at first this was kind of about black boys and, like, how can we kind of shift the focus back on them a little bit? I mean, I've had to, to kind of this fight on some of those kind of conference calls and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's really, really tough. Well, well one is- of the things is from an organizational development um, perspective uh, in terms of technique uh, Zakia, I don't know if someone has written about the urgency of this issue relative to black boys. Yeah, well, I, the work that I've studied was mainly uh, Jawanza Kanjufu, and he's actually uh-huh. written about the special education piece, and Umar Johnson has too. I mean, I know yeah. he's not and very he popular has- because of the LGBTQ community, but he's very on point when it comes to this. Yeah, Jawanza just published a new book in regard mm-hmm. to black boys. But one of the things I think that when you're dealing with the audience that you're dealing with, that you have to uh, approach it as reserving your time to talk about the urgency of black boys as opposed mm-hmm. to trying to put them into uh, a larger um, into a larger scope on the oh, issue. Okay. Okay. People... And and the other is I I was listening to you personalizing why you have uh, placed focus on black boys and to use that as another technique. 
And, you know, I've gone into meetings and I want to talk about white supremacy and I want to talk about it and people will say, you know, people have all this. And I've asked people to reserve their it happens to white people stuff. Uh-huh. Reserve it. I'll give you I'll give you some time. If after you after we deal with this, I'll give you right. some time for that. Right. Um <clears throat> But part of it is that the engines that drive uh, the exposure to the public about these issues, the bottom line, Dr. Curry, Zakia, is that the fear of black men. Yeah. If you start solving the problems of black boys, they grow up to be black men. Mhm. And this is right. And you know the, the 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 major problem I have, you know, is the way they try to constrain these conversations. You know, I mean, you know, you're giving a very real conversation about your son, about how he was trying to be placed in special ed, and you're linking that up to this this hugely disproportionate, you know, almost you know 950 some thousand incarceration of of, of his population of black males. Right. And instead of people, and see, and this is this is what I mean when I say that we, black people, especially these black bourgeois, because the people that you're arguing with are policymakers, opinion makers, and and academics. The people who are producing this have a very very narrow vision of what progress looks like. For them, right. mm-hmm. producing more black college educated black women that are in control are at the top of whatever capitalist production, be it a yep. law school or academic, et cetera. They are not yep. interested in the in poor black people who are losing sons, husbands, et cetera. So their, right. their interpretation of you saying you're focusing on black men and boys is where well, you're against black women. And the yep. idea, that idea is so silly. I mean, it, it's so historically false that you're, that you can even suggest that. And so you're, you're dealing with people that have a certain pathological view of black people in the first place, where they think they can separate black men and black women and black children, as if these mm-hmm. people don't form communities and households. But the more insidious part is, is it tries to label you not as a thinker or an activist, but suggests that you're somehow betraying a cause because you don't take up their ideology. Right. And this is one of, and this is one of the ways in which, you know, when you when you present this material, these types of things have to be pointed out. That if you're if you're so interested in black girls, then what do you think their future is going to look like? Where the world pathologizes their the person, their brothers, their husbands, etc. Like, what world are we living in where we say, well, we're not interested in black families and black communities. We're just interested in a very narrow notion of black girls who only achieve certain focuses. Because you're but not we also about introduce a complexity, and the complexity is that the issue of Black male female intersection is uh-huh. different mm. from this problem. Right. It's different. And we it make is. it much more complex by trying to make it the foundation of it having to do with that. Uh this whole notion that black women have spent generations supporting black men, I you know, I just that makes it complicated. Yeah. to deal with the particular issues, and we have to flush this stuff out. We can't um, continue yeah. to have it be a big cauldron that's bubbling. Well, see, uh, we've that's got to take one piece out at a time. Right. That's what happens when we interpret everything through 
mythology. I mean, most of the, most of these arguments about black men not supporting black women politically and black, you know, all this stuff is not actually true. That's that's why they never right. cite like sources. Like they go, they say this stuff, but nobody says, well, in in this year on this event, black men didn't do X. Because that, mm-hmm. that story doesn't exist, right? I mean, even with our, mm-hmm. you know, the debate we had with uh, Ickert, right? That that story did not exist. There was no evidence. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that I think that when we have these discussions, we have to put it in the frame of look. We're interested in a people, and we're interested in all victims. The same way that we focus on women when it's sexual assault and domestic violence, and you know I'm a huge proponent of this. We have to also provide services to help these young black boys who are molested because those become men Thank who you. molest or beat. So we have yeah. to address the mental health and psychological issues of how our people are growing. It's not that you're choosing one group over the other. It's that you're saying that, look, this is a key aspect of black people. These are the most victimized in this situation. Sure, the other mm-hmm. victims matter, but you need to fix almost a million black men in prison before you start talking about 65,000. So, exactly. You know, that doesn't mean they're not important. That just means that you, you, we have to focus yeah. on attention and resources. Yeah, on the issue of domestic violence, until we start dealing with the issues that create batterers, poverty, we're never going to be able to resolve the issue of of intimate partner violence or homicide. You're absolutely right. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is what I mean. Thank you so very much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for the call. I think you. You know, I can't say more about what you are doing in Dayton, in Ohio, and the way in which you have branched out from your local organizing and your local activism to, to, to international, international um, um, centers of discourse about uh, education and the prison the pipeline, uh, the pipeline at prison industrial complex, this is the way it's going to have to be done. Otherwise, yeah. we are never going to get to the end game. Folks, I am telling you, you can have national conferences till till well, you have had national conferences. You have had national protests, but until until you begin to organize at the local level. Yes. Until you begin to really Press the metal where you live, where your children have to go to school, where you have to go to the Social Security office or the welfare office or whatever, until you be where you have to deal with the the city council that voted in the police chief. That's where you will have your effective strategies working. But you know what, Mr. Janice, and, and I know I have to let you guys go, but I really need to say this, and that as a local organizer, we, and, and, and I'm not unique, you know, I refuse to accept that I'm unique because I'm a local, you know, parent organizer. The issue is, like Tommy brought up earlier, is that, you know, you have these individuals who become celebrities because they create hashtags, right? And Uh they are the ones who are getting the vast majority of the resources to fly around the country, like you said, to conferences, fly around the world and talk about, you know, all this other stuff. But when it comes to, like you said, that that grassroots, really local organizing, 
those resources, by and large, are not filtering down to that level. And so you have individuals like me who eventually burn out and give up or go crazy Mm -hmm. because you can't Mm -hmm. do it all by yourself. I face that in my community. I have to make very strategic choices and decisions, and it hurts me and it pains me that I'm not able to uh, hold the city of Dayton accountable because I'm always at the Dayton Public School Board. I have to make that decision or that I'm not holding the county health department um, accountable because black men have the highest you know, death rate in this county. I can't do it all. And it's like, you know, but but but, but then you have these people who run around the world and say, uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just frustrating. And then I see it's almost like people get co-opted like that. It's about celebrity status. It's about, you know, and like, like Tommy said, well, well, where are we organizing on self-defense? Like, how, well, what are, how, how is these hashtags and how are you running around the country or whatever saying all these different things, preventing another death? I am so sick of this, this love affair that they have with this so-called nonviolent civil rights narrative without really, you know, like, like Tommy said, like really giving it a strong critique to like what really was behind, you know, how the civil rights movement really worked was, you know, the Deacons of Defense, you know, uh, Robert Williams mm-hmm. and all these people, like they have just been erased, you exactly. know, from that narrative. And I, it, it, it just pisses me off so much. But thank you, you so know. much for allowing me to speak. Well, thank thank you you. for joining us, and thank you for the work that you are doing. Um, We need like 10,000 more of you. Uh, And Dr. Dr. Elder Vanilia, um, we need, um, we we have got to think through that, you know, we can work on petitions for the Congress and petitions for this and, and all this other stuff. But until we start dealing with real people in real time, in real places. Thank you so very much, uh, Zakia. And um, may the force be with you, dear. <laughs> Keep it up. You can call me. You can call up here on our common ground, and we'll counsel you if you start, think you're starting to get burned out because we need you out there. Okay. Take care. Okay. See, Tommy, that. that that is what we have got uh, to do in terms of building our resources. We've got to put pressure on whoever gives out the money. Why did you give out the money there, and what is happening? What's the outcome? Uh-huh. No, I agree with you. And you can only do that at the local uh, at the local level. I agree. Uh, you can only. I mean, I, I, I'm not understanding why. In every major urban center in this country, that we don't have working groups, a working group for lawyers to work on issues having to do with the with with what's happening in these courts, whether it be the housing court or whether it be the court where Aaron Hernandez is up for murder. Um, we need a working group of teachers and administrator and educational administrators. And by the way, for those of you who are listening, next week at Our Common Ground, we're going to be joined. We're not going to be joined. I am going to be interviewing Dr. Donna Y. Ford, who is one of the preeminent black thinkers about education of black 
people in this country and she she has uh, so agreed she she just can't do ten o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a bad that's a bad sister though. That's oh a, yeah, that's, she's, you know, she's definitely I talked bad. to her on Facebook. That is a bad mm-hmm. black woman there. You know, but, yeah. the, but the thing you know, but I appreciate her work so much because, you know, and we talk on Facebook all the time, is that, you know, she understands that there are different phenomena that affect black males and black women and that you attend to them both. This this, this simplistic idea that these other bourgeois ac- academic black intellectuals have that somehow focusing on one neglects the other is just it's just beyond me. It's, it's, it's beyond how I understand the rationalization yeah. of how we attend to problems. Because we don't yep. say that. The thing that upsets me is we don't say that for any other group, Janice. Nobody says that if you go attend to white women's problems and you give them, like, advanced fellowships, that transla- that translates to, to a neglect of black women. Nobody says by helping poor students that translates into no, not helping black people. So I'm, I'm curious to understand why only in the situation of when you attend to black men does it erase black women. You know, and mm-hmm. because I, because it's ideologically driven, it's not driven from an interest about black people, and and that's that's what's frustrating. And then they try to flip it like, well, because you care about black men, you don't care about these other groups. Come on, mm-hmm. come mm-hmm. on, people. We, mm-hmm. we're, we're dealing we're dealing with historical problems. We're dealing with things that are evident, like based in evidence. And these little reports that come from these institutes, like you know Crenshaw's Institute, that was published in like three months or so is not the same type of national data that's been commissioned by five or six different institutes that's using CDC and Department of Justice data. It's just not mm-hmm. the same. So we have to start mm-hmm. understanding the role that propaganda and misinformation play in getting certain people's agendas looked at and certain people's agendas de-emphasized. Absolutely. And one of the things I do want to say to my audience, and four four uh, three one two, I'm coming right to you uh, with Dr. Tommy J. Curry, is that, folks, you have to realize that you have to treasure the resources that we have. Right now, we are talking with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. He is, in my mind, one of the most influential African-American thinkers in this country. Uh, I equate him to a combination of Howard Thurman and James Baldwin, <laughs> Tommy, you got that? <laughs> I did, I did. That's that's that's, that's quite a load there. That's quite a responsibility. <laughs> so <clears throat> we have got to be begin to treasure the people who are doing the work. Zakia just called. She spends I mean she has two children. She spends so much two young children. So much of her time working on behalf of black children uh, in the Ohio, in the state of Ohio, she is a national treasure, and we have got to begin to think through. For instance, uh, I I know for those of you who might be new, I've been doing this for 32 years. There are very few black voices authors, scholars, activists, some entertainment people, that I have not talked to for two hours. We don't do drive-by sound bites here. We don't do one-minute clips here. That is why we only try to have 
the voices that are real and re- re- rich and deep to talk with us, not me interviewing somebody. I could talk to Tommy about his tennis stuff and and <laughs> trying to adopt one of his children, but we have to drill down on these issues. And we've been doing that for 32 years. But if you want the glitter of it comes up on your TV, I got brand new brand new TV, one of them curved TVs. Uh, you can listen to Our Common Ground on your curved TV and tune in. We, we, we do the best we can do. This is a one-woman show. So... Um, you know, you've got, we've got to not, we've got to be grateful for the people who work on our behalf, who think on our behalf, and we've not, we should not take them for granted. Three one two, you're on the air with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Thank you for waiting. Uh, not a problem. Hi, Janice. This is uh, House. You How do this you House up? all the time. No, I. <laughs> I pushed the button at 9.52. Okay, <laughs> I've been okay. For a while. Dr. Curry, it's uh, always a pleasure to talk to you, brother. Thank you, sir. Um, I just have a, have a small dilemma. Black-on-black crime. Um, is that that term part of this mythology you're talking about, um, or does that come from thinking white versus thinking black? What's your opinion on that? No, I think... I think that the, the the notion that we have a term on black on black crime is part of the pathology of how we criminalize black people. The reality is that crime is committed around people that you live by. So white people end up killing more white people. You know, this is it's a sociological phenomenon that we bring it about because we have assumed racialized and criminogenic terms to describe black folk. You know, and the problem with that is that this pathology becomes a rationalization of even how white people commit violence against black people. So when white people shoot black people, I think this this happened actually in the Walter Scott case, where you know people were sharing the viral video of uh, Sean Hannity actually taken up for a black guy that got shot in the back, because you had that that crazy preacher from California saying, oh well, you know the, he he did something to the police officer, and Hannity's like, well no, you know there's no excuse for this. So black-on-black crime becomes a way to rationalize, well, if black people kill people, what's the difference when white people kill black people? The reality of the situation, that's why I say that we have to focus again on reality and the kind of ideologies that arise from how, you know, these these political economics and and the racism in our society. The reason we have a notion of black-on-black crime is because people, specifically white people and the bourgeois, want to rationalize violence against black people. So if you can show that black people are naturally violent themselves, it does two things. It de-emphasizes the type of violence that you put on them, and it justifies in the mind of the white society why these people have to be killed in the first place. And it's that two-tiered rationalization, right, because this is what we see with Mike Brown. It's not that he's innocent. He was violent in the first place, so us killing him actually made society safer. Is this kind of idea that runs around and is, is rampant in our society and how we engage with black folk. So when we internalize that, I very much do think that we internalize a kind of white ideology, a kind of anti-blackness that we learn from a white society. Hmm. Um, I asked a question. Uh, I have a, a running conversation with three or four different people who are in favor of using the term, and I'm totally against it. And everything you just said, I said only 
uh, fractionally. <laughs> he basically <laughs> just explained it out uh, great, and I'm going to play this back for him and um, uh, let him hopefully figure it out uh, listening to your explanation. Um, but uh, I appreciate that. And Janice, also, um, I listened to your show. Uh, you were speaking to Dr. Um, Wilbur, Le- uh, excuse me, Wilbur Leon, and he yes. mentioned that he was going to bring you on to the show. Have you had a chance to go on to the show yet? Um, no, we haven't talked about that yet. Um, it will. It's going to have to be in sometime in June, though. I did tell him that. Uh, I'm going to be out of here for the whole month of May. We've got lots of stuff going on. Uh, pardon me? You going to Cuba? No, no, no. Um, my trip to Cuba is not until August. But um, my granddaughter is graduating, getting her bachelor's degree in um, um, something about biology. <laughs> <laughs> And um, there's a lot of things going on. She's being inducted into the National Honor Society for Math and Science, um, and some and another thing. Um, she is also pledging Delta Sigma Theta, which tells me that you know it's just May is going to just be um, a, a very busy month for us. And I don't want to miss anything. She'll be my first grandchild to graduate from 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 college. So uh, I'm going to be arranging, and maybe Dr. Wilma Leon will be one of the hosts uh, of our common ground while I'm away. But I'll I'll I'll, I'll talk to you more more about that next week. Okay, I've uh, canceled my uh, serious back right before Thanksgiving thinking about getting it back, and when you mentioned that you might be on it, I was definitely going to get it back in, in Well, thank you very it. much, House. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, you, you were you know, influencing my purchasing. Um, uh, <laughs> listening to Norman Goldman, um, I found out that Credo is uh-huh, a really? and I'm uh-huh. going to get a smartphone. I, I don't have a smartphone, but I'm going to get a smartphone through Credo, through Norman. Uh-huh. Because of you. I think Norman Goldman is the best in 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 um just the very best in mm-hmm. in talk radio today. And yep. um, um I listened to his show instead of uh, uh Mark. They come on they came on at the same time, so without serious I listen to him now, so uh-huh. But, um, I'm getting all this, and Dr. Curry, and you know, I've yes, listed a whole bunch of others, um, um, names of people that uh, I'm listening to and reading, and um, trying to be positively influenced and um, elevated by. So appreciate that. Wow! Thank you, House, and thank you for all of your support. Of uh, speaking of reading. Um, you know, Our Common Ground has a reading um, uh, activity, and for those of you who are new, every month uh, I ask Our Common Ground listeners to join me in either rereading or reading a new book. Uh, of course, May is going to be Toni Morrison's new book, which is fiction, but the Our Common Ground reading for April is Psychopathic Racial Personality and Other Essays by Bobby E. Wright. 
It's an examination of the group personality of Europeans as manifest in their behavior towards black people. Um, Dr. Wright, who I interviewed before before his death, contends that viewing white behavior towards non-whites as psychopathic provides a new lens through which to analyze and combat the actions and aims of Europeans. He has one essay called The Black Suicide, Lynching by Any Other Name, and he looks at black suicide within the context of centuries of white genocide. I think that you will in, uh, be enlightened by do- Dr. Bobby Wright uh, and hope that you will join us in our reading The book is Psychopathic Racial Personality and Other Essays, and it is available. I don't like to push any particular seller, but it's available on the seller that you know, if you can't find it anywhere else, and and certainly in black bookstores. And it was really interesting, Tommy, that um, um, Bobby Wright's book, you couldn't find in even black bookstores back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It's a so, deep book. um right. Menticide is, is a powerful concept. Yep, you're absolutely right, which is why we think that there you must embrace the urgency of thinking black about our lives, about this country that we live in. Um Everything that you learned must be unlearned in order to really think black. So, Dr. Curry, what's going on with you? What Are you speaking, uh, writing a book? What are you doing? <laughs> well, <I'm, clears throat> I know you're writing a well, you lot know, of papers. Yeah, you know, you know I'm like always to, writing. If you like to... Um, read the work of Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Um, Most of it is posted at, I have a hard time getting into that, academia.edu. Yes, yeah. I I post most of my papers there. I I just believe in open access. I don't think that you have to pay tuition to be able to read articles on black folk. Uh, So I try to post there and, you know, share things on there as well. Um, But I'm finishing up a book on The Man Not, which is actually a book on uh, black men and boys and anti-black death. Uh, so I'm, I'm almost finished with, with that piece. Uh, I, when I gave a talk uh, a few days ago, I, earlier this week at Knox College, I was actually presenting a chapter from that uh, on the economic um, or the political, the sexual political economy of black men and boys and their neglect. And, you know, the funny thing that I always, that I always say is that most of the times when, you know, I'm doing this research, I quote from black women. So what I was really inspired by was Elaine's Brown book, The Condemnation of Little B, where she mm-hmm. said that the academy and black politicians who are fundamentally married to capitalism have both bought into this idea of the super predator. And what I'm trying to develop is this, this idea of racism, misandry, that every form of racism isn't just racism, right? Because under our intersectional logics, there's race, class, and gender. So we think black men are only affected by race. And I was like, this is just historically incorrect. So one of the chapters I recently finished shows that, and you know, and I'm actually using Cleaver because I have a unpublished manuscript where he's talking about his love affair with another man in prison. And what you know, what he what he actually shows is that all racism 
throughout history has always had this fundamental hate of black men and boys involved in it. And what I'm trying to do is explain to people, explain to theorists, that th- that we move, need to move beyond the intersectional lens of race, class, and gender and start actually studying black people. Because if we study black people materially, then we find all sorts of contradictions. We find homoeroticism. We find women rape, white women raping black men. We find a kind of erotics in the murder of black men. We see the molestation and the internalized vulnerability of young black boys, where black women kill black boys, where white people kill black boys because we simply don't believe they mean anything, and vice versa, where black men internalize views about black women. And this is how we see pathologies arise and constantly become, you know, proliferate throughout our communities. So I'm trying to ground a theory that actually talks about our vulnerability to violence. It's not about identity, but about the historical situatedness that black men have suffered under and why they internalized some of these pathologies from their rape, molestation, and, and death. And, uh, you know, what I'm, hoping, what I'm hoping to do is that this book becomes a different type of conversation uh, that we have on black males and the relationship that black males have to black communities. Because I don't think that we, we've gotten to that point yet. We don't, we don't yet recognize that when black men and boys are dying or being killed, uh, that it has an impact, a negative impact psychologically and culturally, as well as economically and politically on the black community. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and um, and I'll, yeah. So I'll, you know, I'll be, I'm actually, I'm giving a paper on one of these incidences on Willie McGee, uh, a black man who was raped by a white woman in the 1950s uh, at University of Connecticut. Uh, there's a conference on resistance and Richard Wright's political philosophy. So I'll be up there in the middle of April. You know, so I'm trying to make sure that we get work out that's that's very sensitive to, you know, the history of racism, history mm-hmm. of sexual violence, uh, as it affects black men and black communities more generally. Mm-hmm. Well, we certainly um, wish you well. Uh, I'm dying to have you on my bookcase. I, I do print out your stuff for a ca- so oh, I, you, you have a you have a folder, but I want a book. <laughs> that's, no, that's that's fair. That's fair. I, you know. I, I'm, I'm writing. I'm, I've dedicated myself to writing books. You know, I liked articles, uh, just because mm-hmm. I, you know, I read so many law journals. Like for me, you know, all my articles are like ten thousand words, twelve thousand words. So I just like big articles. But um, I've kind of dedicated myself to finishing up this project because I really think that there should be something on black men that looks at them as something different than rapists, murderers, and thieves, and abusers uh-huh. of black women. You know, I, I really want us to understand how they're vulnerable and why they internalize certain pathologies and commit crimes and do harm to, to, to women and girls and, and the community at large, just as they've, you know, they've taken on some of these burdens and abuses themselves by other black men and other women and girls and white people and white society. You know, we're complex human beings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We are indeed. And uh, I really thank you for joining us tonight. Oh, I appreciate and it. And I always look forward uh, to having you. It's... Um, it's it's content driven um, analysis and I love it. So no, I, um, I read books. When I when I get back in June, um I, I I'm I'm still writing my book in my head. So mm-hmm. what can I say? <laughs> it's it's wonderful. It's a great work. <laughs> Dr. Tommy J. Curry, for those of you who are listening, I have posted uh, his um, various, um, where you can find his various work. 
uh, on the Internet, and we suggest that you follow him on Twitter and Facebook. It's The Nationist, and the URL is drtjc.tumblr.com, and check him out also at racismreview.com. Tommy, thank you so very much for being with us again, and I look forward to um, talking with you uh, in June. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Dr. Tommy J. Curry, Professor of Philosophy in African American Studies at Texas A&M University. Thank you so very much for uh, joining us here tonight at Our Common Ground. And don't forget, thinking black means that you have to work. You have to work at it. You have to filter everything that happens through your own experiences. I'm Janice Graham. Next Saturday with Dr. Donna Y. Ford, talking about education and the education of black people in this country. I look forward to having you with us. I'll be listening for you. Right now you look at me And it don't seem insane Your dreams ain't easy You just stick by your quest To go from war to man You act like a man When it gets hard down But you know And my background changed And you and me I know you're crying, but it's all in this way. And the things you want, you can't have. They just don't fade away. Life ain't over. Yeah, yeah. Just grab the wind and make the men. And I'm afraid to dig you Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.